Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join David Keane for his message. Just a quick refresher. Uh, there's two different types of theology. There's biblical theology and there's what they call systematic theology. So theology is really just the, the study of God. So theos uh, and, and uh, the, the, so the theology is the study of God and there's two different ways that people actually enter into that study. One is what they call systematic theology where you take an issue and you go back to the Bible and decide, you know, your position on that issue and maybe find scriptures to back that up. But you, you deal with issue by issue. So systematic theology would cover topics such as uh, grace, you know, topics such as, um, uh, you know, how we're saved and, and all sorts of topical situations that we then create a theology out of. Biblical theology, on the other hand, is when we actually look at the narrative of scripture and, and the theology that, that flows through the scriptures. Because at different points of time, God revealed himself in different ways and at different levels. So the only way to really understand the Bible is to understand the concept of progressive revelation. So all the way through the Bible God revealed himself progressively. He revealed himself to Adam and Eve in a certain way, to Noah in a certain way, to Moses and as he went down through the years and through the generations God revealed progressively more and more about who he was to the point that Jesus came and Jesus came as the image of the invisible God. And so when Jesus came, and we cover this on Sunday, uh, we're looking through the book of Colossians. And in Colossians, I didn't give you this scripture, Joe, but we're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And uh, I'll put my glasses on so I can see it. Um, so Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And we cover this on Sunday. It says this about Jesus. It says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now the passage goes on, but this is making an incredibly broad statement about who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator. But essentially what this is saying is Jesus is supreme above all things. Now there's a term that we use for that in, in theological terminology and that is the term sovereign. So God is sovereign. And what that means is that there is nothing that is outside God's power. There's nothing that, outs- that is outside his ability to bring change or, or there's nothing that, that he doesn't understand, nothing that he doesn't know. We, we see all through scripture that God knows, not just present, but future, past. And, and it says he, he is the beginning and he is the end. You know, not he was the beginning and he will be the end. But right now in this moment, he is the beginning and the end. And so this concept of the sovereignty of God is a concept that, that the, the early church grappled with. And the early church grappled with not so much recognizing the sovereignty of God, but with what does that then mean? And right through church history, this this concept of God's sovereignty became an issue that that led to much discussion and much debate. And and actually many different churches have have moved and separated from each other over this issue of the sovereignty of God. Now we saw in the... the, uh, the Reformation, there were two main uh, reformers, there were lots of different reformers, but the two main ones that have endured through history are um, John Calvin and 
I'm having a total mental blank. Luther, Martin Luther. So there was Luther and there was Calvin. They, they, you probably all heard their names. So Martin Luther was, was the, is said to be the father of the Reformation. He was the one who, who was a Catholic. Uh, I think he was a priest, actually. He was a Catholic priest. And, and he read the scripture for himself and he realised that so much of what the Catholic Church taught at that time was actually anti-scripture, was against what the scriptures taught, particularly in the sense of... Uh, that God wanted to communicate with all people, not through a mediator. And, that, and so the, the, um, Luther came up with these concepts and, and he, he wrote a thesis. It was actually called the 95 Thesis. And he uh, hammered those onto the wall of the Catholic Church and that was the start of the Reformation. Now, another man who was very prominent in the Reformation was a guy named John Calvin. And, and um, each of these guys formed their own churches, I guess, or formed their own groups who followed them. And uh, interestingly, both Lutherans and Calvinists were the two groups that came from, from those two men. In many ways, over the, over the years, and now actually very much mirror what they came from in the Catholic Church. And, and there's a lot that, <clears throat> that is the same in both. But one thing that John Calvin was very strong about, and it became known as Calvinism, was this concept of the sovereignty of God. And what he said was that if God is sovereign and God knows all things and he orchestrates all things, then it's actually, it doesn't actually matter what we do. In a sense, we are, we are not active players. We are passive players in the will of God because God being sovereign is going to do his will anyway. And there's all these scriptures about how God has chosen beforehand those who he predestined, he foreknew, and he called. And so all of these concepts, Calvin has said that that means that God has already determined who is coming into the kingdom and who is not coming into the kingdom. And so... The outworking of that for many people over the years, and there are many people who still um, hold on to the, this, this concept of the sovereignty of God as opposed to Christians having free will. And so in, in a sense, we don't really have free will anyway because God's sovereign. He's just going to do what he's going to do. And so this actually leads to almost a passive and, and maybe a fatalistic worldview. Because you have a fatalistic worldview, it says, well, it actually doesn't really matter what decision I make because God is sovereign and, and God's going to do what God's going to do. The problem is that worldview is actually very much against so much of what the New Testament scripture teaches because right from the time of Jesus, Jesus himself proclaimed that for all who enter into the kingdom that they will have eternal life. John three sixteen for, for those who believe in him, they are given eternal life. It's always, it always comes back to that choice. And Jesus gives everyone a choice. He, he calls everyone to him, but he doesn't actually change his demands or he doesn't change the, the standard to try and get somebody in. He, he makes the call, but he gives you the choice. And an example of this is in, in one of the Gospels where Jesus... He's speaking to the, uh, he's referred to as the, the rich young ruler, a very wealthy man. He has lots and lots of um, possessions, properties, servants, all of that stuff. He, he's what we would call a very wealthy person today. And, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, all of my life I've done all this stuff. He lists all the commandments. And he's basically saying, hey, I've, I've, I've been perfect. I've, been, I've done everything. You know, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus said to him, Knowing what, he, what was in his heart, knowing that his riches had his heart, Jesus said to him, sell everything you own and come follow me. And it says that the, the rich young ruler turned away downcast and sad because he had great wealth. 
and he wasn't willing to give that up for Jesus. But, you know, the interesting thing is Jesus didn't then stop and say, oh, okay, how about half? You know, let's go 50%. Jesus made the call. The man made the decision and walked away, and Jesus allowed him to walk away. Now, we don't know what happened with that man in the future. We don't know if he came back to Jesus at some later date or not. But the thing is that Jesus calls, but Jesus doesn't force. He doesn't coerce. So we have these two competing realities. One is the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, if God is above all things and knows all things and, and is, uh, we have all sorts of terms like all-knowing, uh, all-powerful, all-present, omnipresent, um, all of these different terms that, that we use for God, then how can I do something that's against his will? Or, or people look out around the world and they say, how can these things happen if there's a loving God? Why is there so much stuff going on? And, and so it's been a concept that we've struggled with for many years. And, and Paul deals with it in the book of Romans. And I want to just go through a couple of chapters in the book of Romans. And, and just let's flesh this concept out a little bit. Because it's a really important concept for us to understand how God can both be sovereign and give us absolute, complete, total free will to decide whether or not we will follow him, whether or not we will enter into his kingdom. Because unless both of those are true, then scripture is wrong. And, um, and I've had arguments with people over the years who, who are you know, adamantly one way or the other, and they'll, they'll either say, well, God's sovereignty, therefore you know, we don't have free will, or people say, no, no, it's all about free will, and so God's, well, I don't really believe God is sovereign. And, and either one of those paths actually leads to deception and, and leads to error. But let's just look at what Paul has to say. So Paul in the book of Romans, the book of Romans is, is Paul's uh, greatest theological treatise, they call it. So this is Paul's entire teaching wrapped up in a letter. And the reason for that is because all the other letters Paul writes, he's writing to churches that he founded or one of his followers founded. So he's writing either as a father to that church or a grandfather to that church. And so in many of the letters, he doesn't start out with his teaching because this church was actually founded on the teachings of Paul. But the church of Rome was different. The church of Rome predated Paul. So he's writing to a church that actually had nothing to do with him before that, and he's introducing himself to this church. And so you see the first part of the letter from chapter 1 to chapter 8 is essentially a sermon. You know, we, we divide it into chapter and verse, but if you want to understand the teaching of Romans, you've actually got to read 1 to 8 as one teaching, as one uh, uh, continual narrative. But then we find something really unusual happens in chapters 9 to 11. It's almost like he, he stops mid-message and he goes on to this totally different stream of thought where he starts dealing with this issue of the sovereignty of God. And we're going to cover a fair bit of that in the next 10 minutes or so. And then after chapter 11, he goes back to almost like where he left off chapter 8. Chapter 8 is, is all of the teaching about this new righteousness from God and, and, and he's, he's providing all the proofs as to how this is not the same as the Old Testament. This is a new righteousness apart from law because nobody's been saved through law. Law was given just so that we would know that we were sinners. And so he comes with this, this entire message up to the end of chapter 8, finishes with, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of the work of Jesus. And then chapter 12, he comes in with, therefore, this is how you should live. So 12 to 16 is really just a whole outline of, because of Jesus, this is how we should live. But in between those two, in every other letter, he, he has that sort of concept leading, starting from, from theological message to outworking in your lives. But in Romans, he splits that up with this 9 to 11. And it's a fascinating passage of scripture. And, and we're going to start at the beginning of 9. <clears throat> 
we're going to read a fair chunk of these three chapters because it's really important. Sometimes it's good to read big chunks of scripture, you know. It's good to read a verse or two here and there, but sometimes you actually have to read an entire chapter or two to really understand the point that the writer's making, and this is one of those. So he starts out here, he's finished... Uh, for you know, chapter 8 for I'm convinced that neither death nor life none of these things can separate us from the love of God and then he says I speak the truth in Christ I'm not lying my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race the people of Israel theirs is the adoption to sonship Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your, that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad... In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. We'll stop there for a minute. So this is actually a pretty scandalous sort of passage in many ways. You know, what he's saying is, with Jacob and Esau, and God actually says back in Genesis that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And Paul's saying before any of them did anything, before they were even born, God decided who would be the child of promise and who would be the one that was rejected. And this is this concept of the sovereignty of God that people talk about. And he goes on, he talks about Pharaoh. Let's just quickly read because this gets even more interesting. Um, we'll go to verse... Oh, we'll just keep going. So he says, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So he actually goes on to say that the reason that God raised up that Pharaoh was essentially so that Moses could bring him down, so that God's glory would be revealed in his downfall. Now we get to these sorts of passages, they're, they're tough passages because they, that they can challenge what we think God should do or they can challenge what we think maybe would be fair. And, and sometimes, sometimes you see things that happen or you see things that are in people's lives or you see things in the world around and we don't understand and we don't understand God how can you be sovereign and these things go on how, how can you have decided to love Jacob and hate Esau before they were even born how, how, how did you raise up this Pharaoh and he hard, it says here he hardened Pharaoh's heart 
And this is what the Calvinists would argue, that it was God's sovereign intention. So he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and therefore Pharaoh was just following what God had placed in his heart to do. And because God had hardened his heart and Pharaoh just acted accordingly, therefore how is that Pharaoh's fault? You see, you see the logic? You see the argument? This, this is a Calvinist sort of argument. But the problem is it flies in the face of so much else of Scripture. Now, there are a number of what we refer to as dichotomies in the New Testament. So dichotomies are things that, that, that it seems as though they can't both coexist and yet they do. And this is one of them. One of them is that God is sovereign and he does do what he chooses to do. And he does have mercy on who he chooses to have mercy on. But at the same time, God actually loves us so much that he has given us a choice. And it's actually our choice whether we enter the kingdom of God. Now, the problem with a Calvinist worldview or with, a, with, with this worldview of God's sovereignty almost to the point that I therefore don't need to do anything is, is that the outworking of that is when I go out there, why would I go and witness to anybody? Because God's already chosen who's going to come into the kingdom and he's chosen who's not going to come into the kingdom. And whatever I do is not going to change that. And, and that's the view that I've heard many Christians speak over the years. And, and it becomes this fatalistic worldview. And all we end up doing is, is trying to hang on and hope we last through to the end. But that's actually not what God's called us to do. He's called us to a kingdom that expands, a kingdom that, that goes into this world. And, and, and we are that new creation in, in God who he's called us to actually transform this world. And, and it's through that transformation, God's will is actually that all would come to know him. You know, and it tells us that many times in the New Testament. But let's keep going because I just want to get through what Paul's trying to say here. So he says there, verse 19, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like that? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You know, some years ago I, uh, I preached a message on, I was reading first through scripture and, and this, this, this suddenly dawned on me. I'd read this scripture many, many times and, and there was something in there that, that I'd never really thought about before. And, and I was reading the story of Gideon. You all know the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. You know, he's there and he's in the, the threshing floor and God calls him and says, I'm going to use you to overthrow this, this enemy um, army, an army of a hundred and something thousand soldiers. And Gideon was pretty scared and, and in the end, through this process, God leads him to this place where he agrees and says, okay, I'm going to lead the army and we're going to fight the enemy. And so anyway, they go there with something like um, 37,000 um, troops. And these 37,000 troops from Israel, they all head off towards this battle. And, and at a certain point, God says to Gideon, I want you to turn around and ask, who's scared? And, and 27,000 of the 37,000 put up their hands. He says, right, go home. Go. Just, we'll, we'll go with 10,000. And so they keep going with the 10,000. And then they get to this stream. And God says to Gideon, watch the men drinking. And anybody who puts his head down to the water to drink, I want you to put him on this side. Anybody who cups the water in his hand and drinks like this, I want you to put him on this side. And so 9,700 men were put on this side because they, they knelt down to drink. And 300 men were put on the other side. And God said, right, these 9,700, I want you to send them back. And the 300 went on, they won the victory. God's whole purpose in this was he was going to win the victory by supernatural means and he wanted the people to know that he was God. But the thing that suddenly dawned on me, I started thinking, 
you know, of those 10,000, let's forget the first 27,000 that went, but of those 10,000 that were left, there was 9,700 men who were willing to go to battle, who followed God, who went to that place, and God's will for them was actually to go back home and not be part of the battle. That was actually his will, because his will was for him to be glorified. And, and we think of the 300, we all want to be part of the 300 and part of the victory and getting in there. But, you know, sometimes what if it's God's will for you to be in that 9,700? They did nothing wrong. You know, I've heard messages that people have said, oh, it's because they weren't watching when they were drinking, therefore they weren't ready. That, that's not consistent with the whole message of that story. It was nothing to do with those men. He didn't pick the best 300. He didn't pick the most competent, the most capable 300. Otherwise, that goes right against the whole purpose of that story, which was he was showing them that he was God and he was going to beat hundreds of thousands with 300 men. It was supernatural. It wasn't to do with them. So these 9,700 men, imagine going through the, the rest of your life, being one of those 9,700, knowing that God's will for you in the greatest moment of Israel at that time was to actually be sent back home. This is the sovereignty of God, you know, because those men were just as much following God and in his will by doing what he commanded them, by going away and not being part of the battle, that the 300 who were part of the battle. And, and these are things that we, sometimes we struggle. We struggle to listen to this and we struggle to contemplate this because we, we like to think of, you know, God's going to call us all into this battle and do all these great things. And, and, and that's fantastic. You know, in many cases, God will. But the truth is that God actually knows far more than we do. And sometimes in my life, God will ask me to do something that seems a bit weird or seems a bit bizarre or I don't understand. Say, God, why would you ask me to do that? You know, I want to do this. Why are you asking me to go there? Why are you asking me to do that? And God won't always tell us why. You know, there's another great example of this, and that's the, the, the um, chronologically the oldest book in the Bible, and that's the book of Job. Now, Job was, the setting of Job was actually prior to Moses. And Job was a man, many of you probably know the story, who served God, loved God, followed him. And effectively, God and Satan had a bit of a bet, you know, as to how much could Satan really bring against this bloke before he would crack and stop worshipping God. And so God gave Satan a certain amount of freedom. Okay, you can do this to him, but no further. So Satan goes and does all that to him, and his kids are killed, and he's, he's, uh, all of his wealth's taken away, and he, his life begins to really suck. And then he still worships God. And then God says to Satan, we can go a bit further. You can fill him with illness, but don't take his life. So he has all of these, these diseases and illnesses, but he's, his life is not taken, and he's just in misery. And, and all the way through, the, the whole story is three of his friends come and tell him all these different reasons, theological reasons as to why God must be doing this. God must be doing this because you're a sinner or because of this or because of that. And at the end of the story, God comes and tells all three of those guys off and says, no, none of you were right. None of you actually have any idea. None of you can speak for me. And none of you know why I did what I did. But then, even though Job did not sin, God says later on, Job did not sin, God stood Job up. And, and effectively, he, he said the same thing that Paul just said here. He said, who are you to question me? Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I put the stars in place, when I created? And he goes through all these different um, incredible animals and things that, that he created. And he said to Job, who are you to question me? And then, importantly, as far as we know, God never, to the day Job dies, tells him what, what it was all about. He goes to his deathbed not knowing what all that was about. We get to read the end of the story. Job didn't. And in a sense, that's actually grace. 
That, that's merciful because could you imagine if God told him, oh, yeah, Satan and I were just sort of working out whether you'd crack. You know, like it was the, the devil came and, and God basically, you know, he, he God said to, to Satan, look at that guy there, look at Job. He, he is a man that serves me, that, that loves me, and God was boasting over him. And, and so this, this all happened in the heavenly realm, but Job never found out what it was about. Job's role in that, and, and he ended up fulfilling it just as God intended, was to continue serving God and worshipping God no matter what those circumstances were. And, and it's, it's quite an incredible book, but quite a difficult book, because it tells us much about the sovereignty of God. But as I was saying before, that's only one part of the story because we can think about the sovereignty of God and we can think about, okay, well, if I'm Job's situation, I'll just sit back and let everything happen. But you see, in Jesus, we are commanded to do otherwise because the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we are filled with the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now resident in us. And so Jesus said to his apostles, one of the last things he said on this earth, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go. The implication is now I'm giving you that authority. Go and do this. He was giving us, believers, the same authority that he had walking this earth. And, and Jesus, walking this earth, actually had the sovereign authority of God. Now, we're given that authority. doesn't make us God. doesn't make us sovereign. But never again can we stand there and just you know, hope that God will do whatever he does because it's not up to me anyway. Because that's not, that, that's not the, the, the attitude or, or the posture that we have in this new covenant. See, everything changed with this new covenant. In the old covenant, the, 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 uh, the, the concept was you are holy. Anything unholy cannot touch you or it will make you unholy. So your whole posture was I've got to stay away from anything unholy. It's almost like a hiding that the people were, were trying to hide away from the world. Can't touch this, can't eat this, can't touch a dead body, can't any of this stuff. Can't do it because you'll be unclean. When Jesus came... Jesus came into a room and he touched the unclean and he didn't become unclean, they became clean. Rather than the power of what's out there touching you, the power that's in you needs to touch out there. And that's the posture and that's where this, this sovereignty of God, in his sovereignty, Paul goes on in this passage to talk about those he predestined, he foreknew. And, and he called us, it says that we are, we are saved by grace through faith, um, set aside to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. This is what it says to us in Ephesians. So God's sovereignty actually sets before you a number of things that he wants you to do in this earth. And he's given you the authority and he's given you the spirit of God and he wants you to go out into all the world and make disciples of all all. All creation, it says. You know, that we are to go into this world and transform the world. And, and God, in his sovereignty, has given us that place. But the thing is, not only in salvation, because we, know, we all know in salvation we get to choose. You know, if you choose Jesus, you have life. If you choose darkness, you don't have life. But even in our Christian walk, we get to choose. And I think sometimes we, we don't realise what dignity and, and what grace that is that God has actually given us freedom to choose. You see, we can choose to walk in the fullness of God or we can choose not to. We can choose to go into the world and transform the world for him or we can cho choose to sit back and do nothing. We can choose for his spirit in us <clears throat> to go out into the world, into all those around us. We can choose that just as we have freely received, we can now freely give or we can choose not to. We can choose to stop it up. 
And the choices that we make, they won't change. God doesn't say, oh, no, I didn't think he was going to do that. Oh, now we've got to come up with a plan B. This is where the sovereignty of God comes in. The picture that I have, and I think I've shared it probably in one of the other theology series, but the picture that I have is, is imagine you're playing chess. And you're playing chess against the grandmaster in the world, the one who created the game, invented the game. And you're a novice. You've only ever played once or twice, so you know what the movers do, but that's about it. And you sit down and you play that chess game. Now, you are in control of every move you make. The other guy is not controlling any of your moves. But no matter what move you make, you're not ruining his game because he knows exactly where you're going and he knows exactly what to do and he's six or eight moves ahead of you. So no matter how many moves you make that won't affect the game that he is playing. And so it is with God. You know, God, God in his sovereignty, he knows all the choices we're going to make. He doesn't control them. And he doesn't try and control them. You know what he does instead? He wants to change our hearts. Because if he changes our hearts, then the moves that we make are going to be the moves that he wants us to make. And, and all through the New Testament, and again, I said this when we were do, dealing with uh, the theology and the Gospels, Jesus' whole point in the New Testament, there's two or three main theological themes that he continues to, to bring out. And one of those main ones is this. It's not about your actions. Forget your actions. Forget all this stuff about doing the right things, saying the right things, wearing the right things, whatever religion says. He said it's actually about the inside. Because if the heart's right, the actions will be right. You can have all the right actions in the world and a heart that's dead. That's what Jesus meant when he called the Pharisees whitewashed terms. He wasn't just insulting them. He wasn't just coming up with, with, with better and better insults. It was actually quite a, a profound statement because he said, you, on the outside, you look beautiful. It's like you've been freshly painted. But inside, you're full of dead bones, like a whitewashed tomb. And when we focus on the action only, then that's what we can be like too. I know many people who, who do the right thing, but you hear the words that come out of the out of the mouth, and, and you, you see the, you know, just the, the the hatred or the bitterness that's inside, and you think, wow. But God is working on our heart, in His sovereignty. That's where He works, because then, when our heart is His, our actions will follow. Our actions will follow Him. He doesn't have to control us. He doesn't want to control us. He wants people who love Him. It's like in a marriage, you know. If you try and force someone to love you, then then you're actually abusive. You're actually a tyrant with your children. If you try and force your children to love you, you're a tyrant. If you just love them, and if you just show them the depth of your love for them, then they will love you. You know, respect, love, honour, all those things are earned. And, and the way you earn it is not by forcing it. The way you earn it is by the way you live. And so God in his sovereignty took Jesus, the son, the creator of all, we're told in Colossians 1, uh, the one who holds all things together. And he came down and he showed us how to live a life of love. And he showed us how God thinks about sin. And he showed us how God thinks about hurting people and broken people because Jesus reached out to all of them and he drew them into him and he comforted them and he worked on their hearts and, and he, he, he healed their hearts. And then he said, now you can go and sin no more. He didn't say, no, 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 stop your sin, get out of your life of sin and then we'll come and talk. He, he accepted people where they were and he healed them. And then he said, now go and live differently. 
and see that's the sovereignty of God at work because once those people were healed, then in their free will they wanted to walk out the will of God. And God will have his way on this earth. God will have his way in creation. But he won't do it through control. And so we need to understand that with our free will, that is one of the most uh, precious things that we've been given. But it's also one of the most incredible responsibilities that we've been given because anything, um, and, and this is what Paul goes on with, with in, in Romans 9 through to 11. We won't go through a lot of the rest of it. But he goes on and talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's, he's talking to Gentiles here and he says, just because the Jews have been cast aside, you know, he's, he's using the, uh, the example of a, of, of a tree, you know, just because those branches have been cut off, don't you now start getting all arrogant and cocky and thinking, well, we're better than the Jews? Because he said, well, if the natural branches were cut off, don't you think the ones like you that are grafted in could be cut off too? And, and so really, rather than getting all arrogant about, well, we are the called, we are the chosen, we are the ones who, who are in the kingdom of God and you're not, just like Jesus, he wants us to reach out. He wants us to, to, uh, to love the lost so much that we would go and we would reach out to them and we would call them in, just like he did. You know, just like he went to the ends of the earth. He came down, he became a man, and, and he showed us such depth of love that he died on the cross. The, the, the almighty God, the, the sovereign God, the one who holds it all together, at the moment that they were nailing the nails into his hands and, and hammering the crowns of thorns into his head, he was holding the universe together that gave them breath that allowed them to do that. You know, this was the love of God. And, and so God in his sovereignty will never take away your free will, and God loves us so much that he will actually allow us to step outside his will if we choose to. He'll allow us to not choose him. He'll allow us to choose to not be with him in this life and then to not be with him in the next life. Because if we don't want to be with him in this life, then why would he try and force himself on us in the next life? You know, and, and this is quite an incredible thing. Um, but none of that takes away from his sovereignty. None of that means God is impotent. None of that means that God is not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. Um, all of those things he always will be. But he wants a kingdom where people who are given free will, who are given the divine right of creating their own reality, because that's really what humanity is. We, we are created in God's image and just as God creates realities through his word, he actually gives us the ability to create realities through our word. We can create realities in our own lives and in the lives around us by what we speak, by what we declare. And, and people sometimes don't realize that that's actually an aspect of God that he's placed into us. There's no other creature on this earth that can do that. There's no other creature on this earth that, that, that creates realities through the things that they speak. You know, he's given us skills and abilities to create. You know, mankind is such a creative <clears throat> force. Uh, look at all the things around us that have been created by, by people who have just tapped into uh, the, the, the intelligence and the creativity that God's given them. <clears throat> and that's all part of his sovereignty. And, and in his sovereignty, he has handed the earth over to us, to Adam and Eve. He said, rule over this earth, subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply. God wanted his kingdom to spread. And, and the message is the same. The message to us is the same. And so I want to challenge us today 
you know, sometimes in theological issues, we can we, we can think about you know God's sovereignty, or we can think about free will, and we can we, we can make an academic uh, decision, or we or we can sit there and, and you know make a declaration about this theological truth. But do we live it? Do we live that truth? Do we do we recognise and honour God as sovereign? And do we know that He is above all things? He is before all things and all things are made through him and for him and in him all things hold together. Because if I know that, if I know that God is sovereign, then nothing in this earth can ever hurt me because my God is sovereign. And, and this is the idea of theology. It's not just so that you and I can argue about who's right and who's wrong. It's not about us forming an intellectual position where we can stand there and throw stones at someone with a different intellectual position. It's about do you know that the one you worship is sovereign? And then at the same time, do you know that he has given you the the right of choice to enter into life with him and to transform this world in the meantime or just to live for yourself? And that's a choice that we all have, even as Christians. So tonight I just want to challenge us on this issue. First of all, God is sovereign and, and that itself should transform our lives because nothing should ever be too big, nothing will ever be too big um, you know, like I said on Sunday when we were talking about Colossians 1, if, if this Jesus who holds the entire universe together, if he is supreme over that, surely he's sufficient for my life. Surely he's sufficient for my problems and the challenges that I face. And, and that's where the sovereignty of God is just a mind-blowing concept. But also, what am I doing with my choice? What am I doing with that little bit of, in in a sense, sovereignty that God's given me over my circumstances? Because that's what he has given me. He's given me a level of authority over my life and over my circumstances. And I can choose to use that to serve him and to honour him and to love him. Or I can choose to use that to serve myself and to live for myself. And both of those positions have consequences, good or bad. But what am I doing with my choice, with my free will? And so as, as, we, uh, as we finish up tonight, I'm going to pray in a moment. I don't know if anybody here doesn't know Jesus. If you've never made that decision in your life to follow him, that you want him in your life. You know, following Jesus is not about coming to church and doing all the right things and being a good person or any of that. That's, that's, that's all just sideline stuff. What Christianity is... It's about the the one who created you, who knows your purpose, who knows how you're wired, how you think. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know the purpose for which you've been created. That's what it is. And so if you haven't had that chance tonight, if you haven't ever made a decision to live your life for him, then we're going to give you a, a moment to do that tonight because today is your day. But for most of us here who I know are already believers, I really want to challenge us too. I want to challenge us, are you living as though the God you serve is sovereign, as though he actually is over and stronger than and bigger than and more powerful than anything that you could ever face? Or are you living a life of fear where you're hoping that he's strong enough, you're hoping that he'll come through, but you're really not sure? Because if if we don't understand his sovereignty, then we won't live a life that reflects that. And the second challenge is this, what am I doing with my choices? Because I've been given those choices and they are holy choices that I've been given in everything in life. I'm not just talking about following Jesus, but every day I get choices. Am I going to serve God or am I just going to live normally? Is my job today going to be in honour of him? Am I going to look for chances to spread the kingdom of God? 
or am I just going to go about my daily life and live as though God doesn't exist? So let's close our eyes and we'll just pray for a couple of minutes. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, that you created all. You are almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That, Lord Jesus, you are before all things. In you, all things hold together. And, Lord, we thank you that we serve a God who is sovereign. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the choice to serve you. Lord, that you've called us. You've called out to us, Lord, and invited us into your kingdom. You haven't forced us. You haven't just created some people to serve you and some people not to serve you, Lord, but you've given that opportunity for every one of us as to whether we will say yes to your spirit and, Lord, to live for you. And, Father, I pray this night that those of us who have already made the decision to follow you, Lord, I pray that we would have a new knowledge and understanding of the fact that you are all-powerful, you are almighty, Lord, that you are above all things. There is nothing in this universe, in all of this creation, that is outside your power and your authority and your scope. And Lord, I pray also that you would, that through your spirit, Lord, that you would talk to us about the decisions that we're making. Lord, every day, every minute of every day, Lord, we make so many thousands of decisions. We exert the free will that you've given us. Lord, and in every one of those decisions, we either walk towards life or we walk away from life. And Lord, I pray that you would gently guide us into decisions that bring glory to you, into decisions that lead us to life, Lord, rather than those decisions that lead us towards bondage and brokenness and and, uh, and rejection. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would each have a new revelation of that. And, And tonight, if there's anybody that has never given your heart to Jesus, has never decided to follow Jesus and to live for him. I just want to give you a chance now, just uh, while everyone's got their eyes closed, there's a chance just to raise your hand and we'd love to pray with you. I'm not going to ask you to come out the front or embarrass you, but just give you a chance if there's anybody that, uh, that, that says tonight that you really want to, to make that decision to live for God. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for everybody that's here. Lord, for anyone that... Uh, who senses tonight, Lord, that they need a new revelation of you, whatever that entails, whatever that looks like. Father, I pray that by your spirit, through your sovereign power, Lord, that you would meet each of us exactly where we're at. And, Lord, that you would minister to us. Father, minister your love, your grace. And, Lord, I pray that we'd have a new revelation of who you are over this weekend in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.